this morning, we are going to be continuing our series in the book of Revelation. That's right. We have about a month left in our study, and today we're going to be covering chapters 17 and 18. It'll be our last week of trying to cover more than one chapter at a time. Praise the Lord. Um, I'm going to encourage you to open up or turn on your Bible uh, and follow along. I will not have all the verses on the screen because it's a lot. And so encourage you to follow along there, Revelation, all the way at the end. So go all the way to the end, turn left, you will find it. Uh, now, if you, in case you haven't been with us for a while, the book of Revelation reveals two realities to us. One, it reveals who Jesus Christ is in his fullness. Not just a baby born in a manger or a savior who died and rose again, but a coming and conquering king. It gives us a full picture and understanding of who Christ is is. It also gives us a full understanding of the final victory that Jesus will bring over sin and Satan. Even though the details of that victory are not clear, the victory is. I say that because most every week I remind you that the importance of revelation is not in understanding every single detail, it is understanding the meaning of the message. It is not to promote speculation, to pull out all of our charts, but it is to point us to Christ. It is written to give Christians unshakable hope, especially to those who are suffering in the world, to encourage unwavering holiness, to refute false teaching, and to refocus our Christian lives on the spread of the gospel. That is the point of Revelation. And that is my hope for you this morning. As I've also said each and every week, when it comes to Revelation, we do not know what we do not know. We don't know what is literal. We don't know what is an illustration or symbolic. And God designed it that way. He could have been much more clear if he wanted to be, but he chose not to be because the meaning is what is most important. So that means we have to take the details of Revelation loosely in our hand, even though we've been probably taught otherwise. For example, we've been taught to read Revelation chronologically, straight through. Everything is in a timeline, which could be possible, but the more that I have studied Revelation, I don't think so. In fact, today, in, in studying chapters 17 and 18, if you pay, a close, uh, pay attention to this pronouncement of judgment over Babylon, it's more likely that this pronouncement would have come before the judgments, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, which we've studied in previous weeks. Why do I say that? Because after those judgments, it clearly says in Scripture, in Revelation, there's nothing left. And so we must approach how we see Revelation very loosely. Necessarily not necessarily a timeline, but just the visions that John saw in order. And so as we jump into 17 and 18 today, what we're going to do is we're going we're to quickly move through some possible meanings of what he is saying, and then we're going to spend, hopefully, our main chunk of our time on what it means for us. And today, what it really means for us, the focus, is we're going to talk about what is the greatest threat to a Christian 
in the end times? What is the greatest threat to a man or woman who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Now we also, because we've grown up watching all the movies, we've read all the books, we always think the greatest threat in the end times is getting our heads chopped off for the gospel, right? Starving because we would not take the mark, but that is not the greatest threat to the church. Let's see what John is talking about in John chapter 17. Starting in verse 1, Then one of the angels, seven angels, who had the seven bulls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her head, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Verse 7, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you, you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. Verse 13. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast, and they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Verse 17, for God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. 
That's a long one. Well, I feel like this is in pretty plain language, so we probably don't need to explain it. We can just move on correctly. Correct, right? <laughs> now, listen, this is a sermon. It is not a Bible study. So I'm not going to explain all of this. And if you want to dig deeper, I welcome you to do that. But for today's purposes, I'm just going to give you some brief ideas on brief things, uh, on a couple of things, and then we're going to give you a couple of ways to look at it, which is what matters the most. In chapter 17, we see two main characters. You have this woman who is referred to as a prostitute. You see this in chapter 17, verse 1. He says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came to me and said, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And he goes on to talk about her sexual immorality. Now, though sexual immorality is included, it's not specifically about sexual immorality. All throughout the Bible, you see, um, you see um, God's people and God referred to as a marriage of a husband husband as God and we as a wife. It's, a, it's an illustration. And you see sexual immorality used, especially a lot in the Old Testament, anytime that the nation of Israel would fall away from God spiritually. So it's like a metaphor for spiritual adultery, a falling away. And John tells us that in verse 18, this woman, this prostitute, <laughs> is symbolic of the great city Babylon. So what is Babylon? We studied this in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, where we saw the beginning of Babylon, the Tower of Babel. God had given a command from humanity spread across the earth and to multiply. But some of humanity had a different plan. Verse Genesis 11, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen, which is a black tarry substance, for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the entire earth. Notice the focus here. We want to make a great name for ourselves. We're going to ignore God's command. This is the definition of Babylon. Humanity's decision to ignore God and to glorify themselves. Now, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you know that the Tower of Babylon, it, it grew into a nation, an empire called Babylon. The Tower of Babel grew into Babylon. You, you'll remember reading it, it being under the leadership for a long time, Persia, Nebuchadnezzar. And the nation of Babylon in the Old Testament, it persecuted the Jewish nation. And it also seduced them to fall away from God. And so in this way, <coughs> Babylon, Babylon stands for worldly waste. It stands for this world system that pulls the followers of God, even the church, away from God. It is this world system. And, and some believe that in end times, which is possible, that it actually may be a rebuilt city that takes prominence in the world. So we have this image of the prostitute with her spiritual adultery, immorality that she's brought into this world, which some believe will be a false religion in end times that glorifies man, that welcomes all. And you already see 
bits and pieces of that throughout the world. Most of us read over this chapter because it's full of a bunch of terms that we don't understand. But if you really stop to read it, it is a powerful and poignant and gripping image symbolizing the tendency of all of our hearts to leave God and to run after this world. Now we're told this woman is sitting on a beast with seven heads and and 10 horns. And I actually have a, a 16th century illustration that I found that was in Uh, in one of Luther's old Bibles. Now remember, this is all symbolic. Okay, we're not gonna really see a a red dragon running around, you know, prancing along with a woman sitting on it. But I show this to get your, your mind and your imagination going. And I love the imagery here of all the kings of the world bowing in submission and following this woman who is sitting on the beast because that is what has happened and continues to happen. Now, who is the beast? We talked about this several weeks ago, and I'm not going to go as in-depth. I encourage you to go back and listen. Uh, But the beast is what we refer to as the Antichrist. And if you spend any time growing up in the church, and even if you haven't, you've heard about the Antichrist. And you've heard about this man who comes in the end times and will deceive the world. Now, there's debate among scholars if, if uh, the Antichrist is a, it's one physical person or if it stands for an empire or it's just an evil spirit behind earthly systems. And, and now I lean towards the interpretation that throughout history, beginning from the resurrection to the return of Christ, and you'll see First John talk about this, that there has been and will continue to be governments and leaders and, and systems and structures that the devil's going to use to oppress the church and to deceive the world. Now, that doesn't necessarily rule out an a individual, a man, who will come in the end times. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But there's something we read about in the Bible. It's called the spirit of the Antichrist that moves to deceive people from God. It is a reminder of the world systems that Satan has set up. That is the beast that supports this harlot, this world system. And I'm not going to go into all the details about the seven heads and the horns and the mountains and all of that. Basically, it represents governments and leaders and kings that will be seduced to do the will of the woman, just like we saw in the picture, kneeing and bowing to her. Now, as this vision progresses, we see two actions take place. That At the end of chapter 17, the woman will be devoured by the beast. In verse 16, you read this. Turns on the woman, makes her desolate, devours her flesh, burns her with fire. And the picture here is that this world system will fall in on itself. It will turn on each other. The system of Satan that supports the world will eventually turn on it. Now, the interesting part of this that I find is in verse 17. It says, for, and here's why it happens. It says, for God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. I mean, look at it. He says, for God put it in their hearts. You know what this is saying? That God will use anything for his purposes. 
even those who would choose evil and to follow Satan, he will use and manipulate for his glory. You see this with Pharaoh in the Exodus when the, the Israelites are freed. It's true what God says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will give to no other for my pray, for nor my praise to any carved idols. He will only tolerate evil for so long and he will cause them to even turn on each other. That gives me comfort this morning as I look at the world. I looked at what's going on, that God is still in sovereign control. He will use all things for his glory, and he will not be thwarted. Amen, church? So ultimately, this woman, this system of the world disappears from the earth. And that's what chapter 18 is all about. You follow along in your Bibles. Abdeen, verse 1, it says, And this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Verse 4, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven. And that God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I am the queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. Verse 8. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in the fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. I'm going to jump to verse 14. The fruit for which you are so longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, and they are never to be found again. And we'll pause there. So sum up these verses is the world without God, the system of the world that runs without acknowledging him as God will come crashing down one day. It will come crashing down. Everything this world has built up without God with a goal of making a name for themselves will come crashing down. So what does this mean for us what does this have to do with Echo Lake Church? What does this have to do with you? And what does it have to do 
with me? I think we find the answer to that question in chapter 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God remembered her iniquities. The warning here is for God's people to get as far away from Babylon as possible. Now, why would he need to say this? We'll just go back to chapter 17. Read the description of the harlot. How seductive and alluring she was. It was comparing, comparing this world system to a, to a prostitute who stands in the streets at night and lures a man who's passing by with her beauty. This means the system of the world would be attractive to people. People would want to become a part of it. They already saw this in Rome. We read in the letters how the Christians were tempted by the luxuries of Rome. They looked at all that Rome had to offer and they thought to themselves, surely this is not so bad. It is not the, is it not the same for us Americans. We look at America and everything that it has to offer in all its wealth and its, and its technology and we surely, we think to ourselves, it cannot be so bad. And here and right here is where we see the greatest threat to the gospel, the greatest threat to the church. It's a greater threat than persecution or the antichrist or getting the mark of the beast. It's greater than all of it. One pastor put it this way. He said, today, the greatest challenge facing Bible believing Americans, American Christians, it's not persecution from the world, but hear me, but seduction by the world. This is important for us to understand this because as a pastor, I don't think ever one time I've ever had someone come up to me who was interested and excited about the end times and say, I want to know how I'm going to be seduced in the end times. I want to know how it's going to draw me away from God. No, no, they, they say, I, I want to know how to, to, to stand for my faith, that when they come, and, and if I don't get the, the mark of the beast, which we talked about weeks ago, that they'll chop off my head. It's almost like we're, we're excited for it. We romance the idea of being persecuted and taking a stand for our faith, mostly because we're Americans and we have no idea what it means to be persecuted. But the warning in Revelation, it's not persecution. It's there. It talks about it. But the warning is being seduced by the world. Which is so much more dangerous because it happens without us even paying attention to it. I think it is a sad statement to say that in our, in our country and probably across this world, that there are far too many places where you, you cannot see where the world ends and the church begins. Too many Christians uh, look just like the world around them. We are just as materialistic. We are just as sexually immoral. We are, and we are just as self-centered. A question we should ask ourselves today is can someone look at our lives and does our life look any different than the world around us? 
Would people be surprised to know that we are Christian by the way that we talk when we're not in church, by the way that we plan our schedule when we're not in church, by the focuses of our lives when we're not in church? Would they tell that we're different than the world by the way we handle our marriage when we're not in church or our family when we're not in church? Too often the answer is no. Because of how easily we are seduced by Babylon, by wealth and and luxury and sexual immorality. Is this not what entices us? Is this not why we we as Christians treat sex so casually? We, we, We have sex for pleasure or for fun, rather than, uh, rather than in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. In fact, there's this new phrase I learned about recently from a teenager, a new phrase today I've never even heard before. It's the question, they, they use it, it's called body count. I used to, when I used the phrase body count, it was like how many kills I got playing my video game. Body count now is how many people you've slept with. And it's a source of pride. How many marriages are broken apart because one spouse becomes unsatisfied with their other spouse and they look for intimacy somewhere else? They look for pleasure somewhere else. How many of us, whether we're married or not married, we we look for pleasure on images on a screen? Or we watch TV shows and movies that flash nudity all the time and we look straight at it, not even bothering to look away. We have young women today making money hand over fist by displaying themselves online for subscribers to watch who pay a fee. We are enticed by Babylon. Is this not why money is so important to us? We seek jobs with more money and greater bonuses. We're never happy with what we have. We always want more. We're always spending beyond our means. We're driven by, losing, losing, uh, by fear of losing our possessions, and so we save and build up much more than we need. In Scripture, you see three commands to give. One to your church, one to those who are spreading the gospel, foreign or local missionaries and organizations, and to the poor. And yet churches struggle to get more than 10 to 20% of their church to give. Missionaries and organizations struggle to make salaries of the people that we pay or, or, or to have enough money to minister to the people that they're trying to minister to. Or because we live our lives so tightly in our budgets, if we even have a budget, we have no room to bless those in need. Christ warned against these in Matthew 6. He said, lay up treasures in heaven for yourself and not on earth where moths and rust destroy. But we struggle to do this because we are tempted and enticed by the world. Is this not why our parenting looks the same as the world? Because we desire the same things for our children that the world desires for theirs. We we cart our children all over town 
the same way that non-Christian parents do, teaching our kids to be good at, at all the same things the world teaches their kids to be good at, in sports and entertainment. And, and, and don't get me wrong, it's, it's not that those things are bad in themselves. I mean, man, I got a daughter who's in volleyball right now. I got a son who's in basketball. I, I got another daughter, you know, who's going into track. But it's what our kids are not getting that's bad. It's when those things, those pursuit of those things, prevent us from being parents and leading them into a pursuit of Christ that we're teaching them to love the world. They spend hours of playing video games, hours in front of TV, and on the flip side, they spend minutes, minutes at most in the word of God or in prayer. And the effects are evident. I mean, some studies show, and as I watch the kids in my youth ministry grow, I know it to be true that a good 60, 80% of our kids, they'll leave Christianity behind once they hit 18. And I understand how, it's tough, how tough it is as parents. Man, I... Claire, she went to the Junior Olympics last year for throwing discus. She's one of the best in our country at throwing a discus, right? McKenna, she is going to be a killer volleyball player. Man, she's going to take some heads off for the name of Jesus when she gets in high school. You know, Evan, with his big old hands and height, he stuffs people like Thanksgiving turkeys when they try to take shots. So, like, I understand the excitement of watching our kids excel in all of these things, but Maria and I, we will have failed as parents that is, as they graduate high school and they take their next steps, that that's the place they find their identity, that they find their security and their worth and not in Jesus Christ. But if Maria and I are enticed by the same things the world sells us, then we'll pass it along to them. Church, we need to hear the gracious, gracious, gracious warning of our God that the ways of this world lead to death. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And to love the world means to pursue it to embrace it in your lives. The love for the world and the love for God cannot coexist. And this is the way that it works. Love for the world pushes out the love for God. Even in simple ways. When I sit down to play my video game, instead of opening up the word of God, I'm loving the world, even in simple ways. Now, does it mean every time I play a video game, like I'm, you know, I'm worshiping Babylon? No. But when it takes priority and precedence, even in little ways, I'm loving the world. The more that we love the things and the pleasures and the possessions and the pursuits of this world, the less we love God. I love the way Pastor David Platt put it. He said this. He said, the more that we, we nibble, we nibble at the table of this world, at the things of this world, the more our hearts will be numb toward the love of God. And it is so true, church. I mean, do you ever wonder why we don't have a deeper hunger for God in our day? To pray, to read his Bible, to, to sing his praises, 
to, to, to go out every day with a goal of, of, of telling people about him. It is because that our stomachs, our lives are full with the pleasures and possessions of this world. The priorities of this world. The more that we love the world, the less that we will love God. Now the good news is it works the other way around. The love for God pushes out the world. The more that we love God, the more that we commune with God, the more that we delight in his world, word, the less we will love the world. The more that we see God as the infinite pleasure, as the more we see God as our supreme possession, the less we will run after the possessions and pleasures of this world. The more that we look to God as our, our sole source of satisfaction, and security, the less that we will look in this world for satisfaction and security. Do not miss this. The call to turn away from this world and the pursuits of this world are, are not the path to a dreary and drab and boring life. It is a call to delight and things that far surpass anything that you can find in this world, anything that this world has to offer you. Our problem in humanity is we are, we are far too easily pleased. We're too easily pleased. I encourage you, church, do not fall for that trap. God has something greater for you. Anything this world has to offer. You'll notice a tendency that'll be exciting at first, but what it gives you and that joy and fulfillment quickly runs out. Whether it's a bigger house or a new job, or it's getting in a relationship with somebody because you think you need to be with somebody, it all runs out. You must have greater desires for yourself and know that the only one who can fulfill them is God. If we love the things of this world, our pleasures will always be fleeting. It'll never be enough. And to be frank, our destiny will be hell. He says that you can't love the world and love the Father. I don't know how to say it plainer that if you love this world, you will perish with this world. And to clarify this once again, when I talk about loving the world, we all love the world. We're all attracted to it. We all want to do the things that the world wants us to do. I have a desire to put my kids in five billion sports programs at all the same time because I love watching them just crush other people, right? I have the desire to make more money and get more security. I have the desire to stay up night and play video games and, and have fun. 
We all have the desires of the world. That's why they're enticing. But we have a choice when those desires come in, whether we are going to pursue them or we're going to pursue what God tells us to pursue. That is how you know if you're loving the world or if you're loving God. God is here in his graciousness. He's pleading for his people to turn away from the world before it is too late. He calls his people out of the world, and not physically, but spiritually. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For any of you sitting here today who you're still exploring who Jesus is, if he's real, if you've ever seen people who call themselves Christian and like they don't live like it, this is why. Because they love the world. And they're not loving God. God has something better for them. He has something better for you. He has something better for me. A fulfillment and a security beyond anything that we can manage that will not pass away.